Welcome to Blackbird episode number 89. My name is James, and today I'm welcoming back to the show Jack Mason. Jack, who formerly we knew as the Perfume Nationalist, uh, is still the host of the Perfume Nationalist, but uh, we're using his full name now, which is kind of cool. He's quit his job and is now essentially uncancelable. So congratulations <laughs> on that. <laughs> uh, Knock on wood. I, j- I know. I know I'm going to be jettisoned <laughs> back to the Amazon warehouse soon. So. <laughs> So without further ado, here is my interview with Jack. Jack, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We're recording this on Spring Forward Day. Uh, I'm a little bit more chipper because I've already done one interview today. You, on the other hand, are still uh, having your coffee. So we have, a, we have an image up in place of your video, which is perfectly fine. We'll, we'll make do. I look like Hillary Clinton the day after the 2016 election where she had this bags under her eyes. Oh my God. And just all puffy. She's been puffy yeah. ever since then. Have you noticed that? Like she just yeah. kind of looks like a loaf of bread. Yeah. I don't like what they've been doing with her hair recently. Yeah. It's, it's like she got a hate, <laughs> hateful gay doing her hair, um, looking pretty limp. But I did like when she, they wheeled her out in that like horrible gray suit a couple weeks ago to uh, support the war or whatever. Was she looking like Kim Jong-un? Yeah, she looked especially like prison matron. <laughs> God. Oh, man, she could play mama in, in Chicago, I think, right? I mean. Yeah. Have you ever heard her sing? She sang on the Rosie O'Donnell show. Did she once. really? Like, can she sing? No, it sounds no, just I like her voice. So. Okay, yeah, that's awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I tweeted out last night, and again, we're recording this on March 13th, so y'all are listening to this in the future. I also, last night, had like a Mexican dinner and woke up at about one o'clock in the morning gasping for air, and my throat was just all clogged with bile. It is the most disgusting thing that has ever happened to me. I must be almost 40 because uh, I'm now dealing with acid reflux in the middle of the night, and I've, I can't stop coughing. So that'll be a thing for this interview. Audience, you're welcome. But what I tweeted out last night was that I now have two fragrances. I have American Crew, which is a hair care company, and American Eagle, which is a clothing company. I didn't do the American thing on purpose. Uh, I don't know how to smell them. How do you smell perfume? Like, what, what is, uh, to, to me, the, the breadth and depth of my perception of these fragrances is one is kind of sharp and one's kind of powdery, I guess. Is, yeah. there like a, is there like a technique to it, kind of like wine tasting? Um, It really comes from smelling a lot of different things and learning Mm. about different perfume genres and how things have smelled throughout (laughs) history. I mean, like you, like I don't have a language for like wine appreciation because it all tastes the same to me. And I also think that wine wine and beer stuff is like kind of fake. (laughs) That it's way more the same than fragrances. Yeah, okay. But the, yeah, it basically comes from reading a lot and smelling a lot about scent. So uh, I should go to a department store and visit the fragrance counter and kind of train my nose, I guess. You should buy Luca Turin's Perfumes, The Guide, the original one. Well, actually, all of them are good, but the original big one from, I think, 2007 or 2010 or something. And that provides good uh, toilet reading where you can educate yourself on fragrance genres and right. the history of fragrance in the uh, on the John. 
I um I can read about Odie Toilet on the toilet. Yes. Oh God, that was terrible. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, let's. That was really bad. Unfortunately, uh, department stores also, there's like basically nothing old there anymore. Oh, I sure. guess there's enough. There's still Chanel's and there's still some old Estee Lauder. So it's not totally gone. But yeah, in-person shopping is less exciting than it's mm-hmm. been in the last 10 Damn. years in terms of selection. Okay. So uh, I just wanted to know that because I, I have now two things that I can spray on myself and make myself smell pretty. Um, and I, thankfully, my partner who is like, he's not a, he's not a shit lib by any stretch of the imagination. Um, if anything, he's completely apolitical. Uh, but he's the kind of person who like would have a performative allergy. Uh, <laughs> and, and he doesn't, he loves it when I wear perfume or I guess it's cologne. I don't know. I, when I wear fragrance, uh, he says it makes me smell like bubble gum, which is not exactly what I think it smells like, but that's fine. Uh, as long as he likes it. That's it's good. good. Yeah. You've got to find a way to, uh, red pill them into it. So yeah. they find it enjoyable. The first fragrance I ever got for myself was an American Eagle one, I think. Oh, really? Like back in the heyday of American Eagle in like 2000, it was sixth grade and it was a unisex fragrance called Live. And it smelled like freshly mowed grass. And I was obsessed oh, with it. Oh, nice. I sprayed it like all over like my ceiling fan and <laughs> oh, man. all over yeah, my that's room. One of, that's one of my favorite smells. My first ever fragrance was Michael Jordan Cologne. And then, of course, Cool Water because, you know, it was the 90s. And cool water is still great. Timeless. Is it really? Yeah. Well, uh huh. Yeah. Cool water is. That's like one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Is cool water and Titanic. Yes. It. So yeah, I'd like to get into episodes too. Um, the Titanic episode made me want to rewatch Titanic because I, like everybody else, I saw it like three or four times in the theater, and then maybe once on DVD. And I still to this day think I hated it. But you described it as like the most terrifying movie you've ever seen. It is. It's the most violent and terrifying movie ever made. And the wow. most emotionally torturous. Does I think it it's fi- really funny that be- that people like describe being so traumatized by like Lars von Trier movies and like Irreversible and stuff like that. All that does nothing to me. It's just fun. Um, yeah. But Titanic is so upsetting. I feel like I'm dying for a week if I watch it. Jesus. I guess I should rewatch it. Does it take... I mean, did you feel that way when you were a kid too? Or... Yeah, but it's like the best kind of dying. It's like, okay. a, the, you know, you descend into that frozen uh, gothic underworld after mm-hmm. the ship sinks. But it's something about how perfectly constructed it is and how truly romantic it is. Like, there hasn't been a romantic movie with anything resembling that, you know, a real representation of that emotion since Titanic. Also, the fact that it's real... And just the masses of, like, Holocaust-like death uh, on display and the loudness and the intensity of it and the music, it all just comes together in the way that, you know, Hollywood big-budget movies never Mm. did ever again. But even as a kid, like, you... I guess, for me, I'm really bad at... And we talked about this last time, too. I'm really bad at consuming media. Like, I like the schlocky stuff. Like, I'll give me a Marvel movie. I'll, I'll watch it. Um, I do agree with you, though, that uh, like a, a three-hour movie feels shorter than a two-hour movie. Yeah. And I guess maybe it's just because you get fully immersed in it. Like, hour and a half is just a short amount of time anyway. You can sit on the couch for an hour and a half easily. Two hours, you are, like, ready to go. It's kind of like fasting. Do you ever fast? Have you ever fasted? Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. so, like, after after about Once day you three... you pass the point of no return, and then you feel good? Yeah, like, you kind of stop being hungry after about three days, and... Uh, and then you can just go for a week or whatever. 
So maybe that's what it is about longer movies too. I'd like to watch one of these. And this is my, there's, there's absolutely no way I'm doing it unless like Andrew is out or something like that. But I'd like to watch some of these marathon movies that you guys did. It's really hard for me to watch movies these days. It takes like four hours for me to watch a two hour movie because mm-hmm. of the constant like pausing and <laughs> getting yeah. up to well, do stuff. I have to put my phone in the other room yeah. and I'll still check it like every hour. When we watch when we watch TV together, um, he's he's really he he's really really good at paying attention to details. And so, like, if the boom is lowered into the frame, or like if you can see the my, the, the camera and the reflection on the car or whatever, like we'll have to pause it and go back. Sometimes, you know, if there's some kind of discontinuity, we'll have to pause it so that he can work that out verbally. Uh, and then I'm just sitting there like, oh my god, yeah. I mean, that sounds sounds plausible to me. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I've noticed just kind of going through the episodes I'm so I listened to your top 10 and now I'm just kind of going back and listening to them to everything in order. And I I guess I'm probably a third of the way through or so it's my gym listening, uh, which is kind of interesting, I guess. I noticed that you have gotten more into pop cinema in the last year or so. Whereas at the beginning it was like this really heady stuff that um, like German directors and, and avant-garde avant-garde porn and stuff like that. Um, Is that by design or Am I noticing something that isn't actually there? No, that's probably true. I mean, there's still plenty of heady art movies, like yeah. like the in December there was the Catherine Brea Long Blessé one. There's still plenty of that. It's just the recently I've been into like 2010s uh, kind of culture that I'd forgotten or dismissed or found really annoying, like. Lady Gaga and like American Horror Story and stuff like this. It just depends on what I'm interested in at the time. I will say the best episodes are the ones where the subject is something that immediately incurs a massive, pissy, emotional reaction or negative opinion in the listener. So something like Titanic, where everybody has... Uh, a condescending opinion about Titanic or mm-hmm. everybody either loves it. You know, it's the opposite. Like everyone has an opinion on Titanic. Everyone's seen it. Most people have a really like negative kind of sneering opinion of it. Uh, same with the Fountainhead. That was another one where people just one. get so mad that you're because of their received opinion that you're supposed to think of Ayn Rand negatively that that gets really exciting. I don't know. It's it's whatever. I mean, there's still plenty of uh, torturous art movies to go, but like I did, <laughs> I did the, the simple fact of it is I just covered a lot of my favorite ones already. So, is Ty E still around? Um, I think Soiled Cinema is still around. Cool. He did a bunch of early episodes, and I haven't heard from him. Did you guys have a falling out, or is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to that second Twin Peaks one that's it's pretty clear um yeah he he was obviously a, a huge influence early on and the melancholy Durangle episode is one of my favorites so as is the, yeah. the male fantasies one but yeah I don't know things just come to an end yeah all right cool so the Dallas episode and then I'm gonna switch off of your episodes the Dallas episode made me cry and what? part of it is because I'm from Dallas and like you know I I I've never been to South Fork, but like listening to the GPS tell you the directions and stuff, like I knew exactly where you were and I was kind of traveling along in my, uh-huh. in my mind. It was so nice. 
And like, it made me a little bit homesick, but like, I don't know. I, I think part of it was just feeling like I was like there in the car. And I know that that's kind of your your favorite kind of podcast is just sort of like the ambient sounds and the just the spur of the moment conversations. Sometimes there's just like long silences and stuff like that. Um, what do you think it is about that sort of format that makes people emotional? Well, by format, do you mean like the field recording ones or just yeah, like kind of yeah. long, boring, ambient podcasts? Um, I didn't know that there was a difference between the two, but yes. I, I mean, I guess it's the same thing, but <laughs> yeah. there's, there's like, you know, several episodes that are specifically done with like the field mm. recorder on location, and but they're all long and boring. I just think that uh, with podcasts and with media in general, like a kind of slow, long duration enters the psyche in a different way from fast edited constant events and narration and kind of plot and uh, lively discussions. So uh, I just like presenting things as they are and having really long, long conversations that are, you know, unedited. It comes from my interest in Jacques Rivette's Out One, the 14-hour movie, which I saw in the theater. The first four hours of which are just like French people doing weird loud theater uh improv exercises but yeah i just think that this kind of like boredom causes a particular magic where you forget where you are and it enters your psyche and your memory and also it uh, brainwashes you with like stockholm syndrome because if you listen to something that long then you're gonna think that you liked it anyway well i think i did i hope i liked it So you recently were fortunate enough to be able to quit your job because you are fully funded via Patreon now, right? Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, around the same time, your brother had to take a step back because he's a, he's a dad. So the show is different, obviously, without Orton around. What have you had to do to kind of flex to, to that kind of massive change? I mean, you know, Juggs was on a bunch of episodes sort of in the middle there as sort of an informal co-host, but Orton's been there since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. How has that been for you? Well, I never recorded or edited any of them myself before that, so I had to figure out how to do that, uh, which is not that hard for my purposes. Did he give you any pointers? Yeah, he helped me. Um, The, I don't know, the main thing is with fewer people, you kind of have to constantly think about questions to ask and things to say in a way that like before especially when there were a lot of people like when it was jugs i could just kind of like sit there Mm. um yeah she can talk like (laughs) uh, yeah like uh but no i mean it's largely just the same it's it feels the same to me now that i've kind of got a handle on it and it's just the technical stuff if there's a problem with that which Often the problem is just that people's like internet connections are bad. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing you can do. So you're just like yeah. waiting there and or have you just have shitty audio for it. I love I don't that know, you keep I'm that not stuff in. It's all like fun and experimentation to me. So but I definitely benefit from having a lot more time to read the text and watch mm-hmm. the movies and prepare so I have more to talk about. Yeah. That's pretty great. What do you think it is? Um why do you think so many like smart high potential. Like I've got a friend, I got a friend who's got a degree in engineering from Princeton and he's working at a Wells Fargo. He was a preschool teacher before that. Like, why do you think that so many gay men 
stay in retail and hospitality for so long as someone who, who did that? Well, they don't hire men anywhere and they don't promote men anywhere. And they especially don't hire white men or promote white <laughs> men anywhere. So there's that. Uh, yeah, the the uh, patriarchy, <laughs> the matriarchy, as it were, is uh, is uh, conspiring against you. I don't. I just ended up in hospitality because I like had to have a job. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, my trajectory was like, I'm going to college. I like books. I'm going to be a professor. I never really thought about jobs. I was really not one of these. Um, high achieving, you know, little goody goodies who has it all planned out. Um, I I wasted a lot of time. I'm pretty like lazy, hippie, (laughs) lazy. I'm not lazy. You know, I always work, but have a kind of like uh, low ambition, hippie mindset. Sure. I just ended up in it. Like I, I had the copy editing job at the erotica warehouse for three years, which paid worse than every subsequent hospitality job that I got. And then I was unemployed and like doing like wag dog walking and like standardized test grading for several Mm -hmm. months. And then I just got a job at a hotel and that's how it started. Yeah. And I didn't have like have the luxury of quitting at any point. And I didn't save any money. Oh right, yeah. You you're you're financially irresponsible, kind of like me. Um, where like <laughs> you know, debt feels debt feels better than not having what I wanted to get with that debt. I mean, honestly, I have no compunction about that. I feel like yeah. it's the right way to be because truly, you uh-huh. cannot take it with you. And one of my favorite college professors, you know, and she was like, "Should you go to grad? Should you go to grad school?" And she just said, "Like, money is a renewable resource. Spend yeah. it." And I always think of that. And there's a certain type of financially responsible person who like just sits on money and can't think of anything to spend it on. Mm-hmm. Is in like a bare apartment with nothing but like a TV. And I have always been able to think of things to spend it on. My entire family is like this. So yeah, me too. I don't know. <laughs> it's one of the pleasures of being an American and yeah. <laughs> spending money on. <laughs> Plentiful cheap anyway. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it's on this most this most recent episode. You talked about that. Uh, I don't remember if it was you or the guest, but the the advice to a college student was like get a credit card just for buying concert tickets because uh, you won't regret it. And oh yeah, like that's if, true. <laughs> yeah, I I've been kind of making up for up until COVID, obviously making up for lost time going to live music um, in my thirties because I missed it all in my twenties. So I think I kind of. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more moralistic about saving and things like that, just because probably because of my like uh, libertarian background. And that's just sort of the uh, economics is where libertarianism is, is the best. Uh, but yeah. I'm I, better I, about I, it now since I don't have a paycheck coming every two weeks. But. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. um, the other thing in this most recent episode is that you said that uh, you, you cleaned up lube. Um, and maybe condoms from Peter Thiel. Oh, I forgot I said that. I said that on another episode, too. Yeah, it was at a hotel. I just thought it was a fun uh, little, like, preview of the preeminence that Peter Thiel would take in the the minds of this uh, little scene. And I find all the, like, jokes about, like, Thiel bucks and being funded by Peter Thiel totally, like, tedious and um, boring and not funny and dirtbag left, the worst thing, anything that can anything can possibly uh-huh. be but yeah i did 
you know, everybody who works at a hotel that celebrities stay at excited, excitedly <laughs> relates their stories. To yeah. <laughs> I had a friend who, he worked at a fancy hotel in Dallas and apparently, and I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently he gave River Phoenix head and something Hi. about, something about Keanu Reeves. And I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, are there like, is, is that really common or only kind of common? Um, not like the exciting sex stuff only happens to girls who don't oh. want it. Um, yeah, of course. And yeah, it's just girls being like, <laughs> he hit on me. <laughs> the, but no, they, they never hit guys. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the most exciting thing that happened to me ever was, uh, steaming Morrissey's dirty shirt, which smelled of Comme de Garçon incense Avignon. Oh my God. Um, of and I, smelling his bio, like it was late on a Saturday, and like we couldn't send the shirt out for cleaning, so just asked. I was the only one there. Just asked him to press it, wow. and so I did, and it smelled great. You so what you just said is creepy. Uh, uh-huh. Like you recognize that most people would find that creepy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, Morrissey. Most people no, the, people like rip up Morrissey's shirts when you go to the concerts. He throws yeah. them out to the audience. Well, and and the thing is, I mean, the sense of smell is, uh, like, it's very erotic, uh, or it can be. Yeah. Um. Why do you think that? It, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an underwear sniffer, but there there are lots. I of mean, people I who's, clearly am. Yeah, and and that's considered like a taboo fetish. Um. What do you think that is? It feels pretty like a lighter, more innocent fetish to me. I don't know. I mean, Americans are just kind of like puritanical about scent altogether mm. in a really like tiresome way where yeah like bo is very in now like a lot of people like don't wear deodorant and wear the natural deodorants that don't really work now and also people never wash their hair so everyone smells like dirty hair because of the no shampoo trend so like there's that but happening simultaneous to this just hatred of any kind of like pleasurable ambient smell like hatred of and total like fanaticism about cigarette smoke getting into a window or something. Uh, I don't know. I, I think most people just don't like allowing themselves to be depicted as like erotically desiring anyone or anything. Everybody in America, male or female, depicts themselves as like Samuel Richardson's Clarissa or Pamela, like constantly uh, being sexually pursued by creepy people. No one wants mm. to be the creepy person. Um I'm fine with being the creepy person, uh, the lovelace, as it were. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just this kind of like girlish, especially emphasized like post Me Too. Everyone yeah. just depicts themselves as like imminently desirable, but wanting none of it. Yeah, AOC, AOC coming yeah. back with the with you know the criticisms of her being in Florida without a mask and all that with oh you just want to date me like well, I mean come well because that's that's the you are, only you are, you are hot like we get it but I mean <laughs> is she really um, I think she is I don't know I mean but the, the fact that she's thin I guess is enough in today's mm-hmm. you know um but uh it this has been provided as the only ex- socially acceptable outlet for like human sexuality whatsoever like there's cancel culture. And then there's like depicting yourself uh, as AOC does as some kind of like imminently desirable uh, person who everyone's trying to rape. Um, maybe I only maybe I only think she's hot because of because she's a meme. Like I mean, maybe that's really what it is. <laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, like she has she does give us legendary moments, like the mm. the white 
the day we all woke up to the pictures of her in the white oh outfit at the yeah. border fence crying, <laughs> uh, that was like amazing performance art that was totally instinctual and unintentional for her. She probably thought it was totally serious, but she does have some kind of instinct to know exactly what makes people mm -hmm. mad and gets lots of press. So I guess that kind of, in a really weird transitionary way, uh, brings us to the War on Beauty. Um, that's the course you taught for Renegade University. Can you, like in a nutshell, describe what the War on Beauty is? In the 2010s, the worst decade in American history, aesthetics became deliberately, willfully hideous, spare, utilitarian, not through any kind of like beneficial, like philosophical minimalism, just a total decline in quality and decline in quality of life for everyone. So we have um, every formerly warm and welcoming location in the American landscape being turned into this kind of gray, uh, gunmetal gray shoebox store uh, with wood laminate floors. And it all represents a refusal to accept aging or the phases of life. Hmm. And it bespeaks the kind of antinatalism that has affected millennials who if they ever have one child it's like when they're like 42 um so <laughs> nowhere is a place for families anymore in in the in the in the off chance that that child doesn't have down syndrome and they just abort it <laughs> yeah. it's like simultaneously every place you know, like there are no places for adults either really uh but there are no places for families so mm. Uh, like the most obvious example I always bring up is comparing the way that McDonald's used to look and its advertising and its whole image in the 80s and 90s with what you have today, which is this politically apologetic, grim, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, just like kind of basically just a little computer spitting out food at you. Uh, the really nice, the really nice brown brick. McDonald's yeah. near me is painted gray. Like the brick's still there. They just painted over it with a just drab gray. But I, I think that overall, this represents a lot more than just people beginning to think that carpet is dated <laughs> and, and stuff like this, because it goes along with an overall smooth braining of the populace and a total decline in the quality of cinema and art and there's this kind of like lame lame confidence people have in their own negative and uninformed opinions of art that comes from liberalism and academia uh dispelling any notion of uh hierarchy of greatness so no art can be great so it all has mm -hmm. to be talked about in this like negative tone where you go through with a red pen and just learn to point out what's wrong with it um, yeah, that hierarchy thing uh, is. I've been thinking about that lately. The so you you frequently hear that the the sort of definition of the left is skepticism and rejection of hierarchy, where the definition of the right is an embrace of hierarchy. But I think that's not quite it. The left loves artificial hierarchies. 
Like mm-hmm. if, if they can if they can place people in their hierarchies or place you know entities in the hierarchy, then 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 that's it. They love to construct that kind of thing. Well, the left it's loves the, inverted hierarchies. That's the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, is yeah. If everything is just simply the opposite of observable truth, then the left loves it. So you know, this is how you, what you see in the Fountainhead, the way that it depicts the council of media people, news people. Uh, mediocre artists, all communists, whether they know it or not, um, being artificially elevated uh, so as to um, distract anyone from the notion of actual greatness or like human capability. Do you think that the war on sex and the war on fun and the war on togetherness, uh, I mean, you know, the last two years, obviously, the COVID, all the COVID stuff has been a war on all of that stuff. Do those stem from, relate to, uh, do they precede and I just didn't notice it, the war on beauty, or is it kind of all the same thing? Um, I think there's been a real lack of uh, people who can accurately assess the war on sex or what's going on. Because like right-wingers always have this corny corny view that I totally disagree with. They think Mm -hmm. that we're in this totally sex-saturated, horny time, and that liberalism represents unbridled orgies and decadence, and that liberals are like having crazy sex. And this is patently the opposite of truth. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, we're living in a time more negative to human sexuality and more like panicky and fearful about it. It's worse than it has ever been, ever. And I fully believe that. Um, Because in terms of like movies, um, nothing has sexualized nudity anymore. And if someone sees a female breast on screen, they think that the movie is jumping out and literally raping the audience uh, by showing sexual exploitation of a woman. Things like this, like it's just this magical thinking that comes from liberalism and um, Me Too and intersectionality and 10 years of this brainwashing and no one speaking up about it. Um, But I I really, really particularly cannot stand the right-wing diatribes against the supposed uh, bacchanalia (laughs) and Dionysian excess of of libtards because it's it's simply not true like they always right-wingers always bring up that stupid picture of like drag queen story hour uh-huh. uh that's like six years old this is not a real problem this is not something that like happens or exists it's something that like libtard uh you know female librarians will like discuss in their little like diversity meetings um but drag queen story hour is not like the you know most preeminent problem facing uh western civilization right now like the censorship that liberals support uh the unprecedented levels of censorship and like totalitarian control that's the problem it's mm-hmm. not like this fucking uh lame crybaby like it, it always comes to like the kids in the school they're being brainwashed by the libs and like taught to masturbate by the libs and this just strikes me as so false i don't know but uh on the other hand i mean crt and well i don't know so are do you think that there is at all a problem with 
certain educators like yeah, trying to, indoctr- trying to indoctrinate kids? Yeah, the entire um, 2010s transgender industrial complex and uh, critical race theory. That's that's obviously a problem. Uh, I'm not I'm not giving the intending to give the idea that I have no problems. Like I don't believe that like liberals are socially engineering people towards evil. Uh-huh. Uh, they obviously are. I'm just saying there's a particular kind of um, kind of sour grapes, sex phobic, right wing verging on left wing. Uh, the sex panic thing that straight people mm, tend to do. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, one of the earliest like movie memories that I have. So, when I was a kid, I loved martial arts movies, and I saw all the Steven Seagal movies. When I when I would uh, stay home sick from school, my mom, in order to like babysit me because she had to go run errands and stuff, she would rent me Steven Seagal movies to watch, you know, on my own with a pot next to me to vomit in, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so those are kind of my earliest movie memories, and they were super violent. I remember one; uh, I think it's called Marked for Death. There's like women's tits everywhere. He has a, he holds a severed head up. It is the absolute like most. I, I don't know. I mean, I love the I love the memory of it. Like it didn't scar me, but you would never see that now. Why do you think the movies? Like the movie rating system and all, and just movies in general have become so puritanical. I, I, I assume it's all part of this, uh, but like, why doesn't that, that se- why doesn't that are, even sell anymore? Why why is there no market for it? Um, or is there? Because people have been taught by liberalism that it's immoral, like it's it's a morality thing, but mm-hmm. it's not coming from like evangelicals or not any kind of like Christianity. Yeah. It's just the the social justice religion that liberals have created entails that. Um, any level of like uh, clinical, like irreversible head smashing violence is okay. Like every like network TV show now has violence on par with like Gaspar No movies in the two thousands, yeah. and nobody thinks anything of it. It's just the sex stuff. If if it's mixed up with sex, or if it has anything rape uh, related, or if anyone says the N word. Um, then that triggers they're like, oh, this is a good, this is immoral thing. Um, there was an episode of Monk, the USA show. Uh, I think it aired in the early two thousands. Um, so before before all this, really, <laughs> there's an episode. It's the most gruesome thing I've ever seen. They and they didn't even show it on camera, but the 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 killer in the episode has trained an elephant to squash people's heads, like on command, and that's how they. <laughs> it's just the most disgusting thing I've ever seen, and. Like, it's just, like, this family-friendly, like, that was just another episode. Um, oh, I mean, TV so- <laughs> used to be a lot filthier. Like, yeah. I'm just, even sitcoms like Mama's Family and, like, Three's Company in the 80s, I mean, every single line is a uh, filthy sexual innuendo. Um, and then in the even 90s. Playhouse. Oh, yeah, Peter's Playhouse, too. <laughs> the the Christmas special especially is, uh, yes. like, the floorboards are looking up uh, Miss Yvonne's skirt and stuff. Yeah, we um, just, yeah, we, we just rewatched the, or I, I rewatched it. My, my partner's way younger than I am, so yeah, yeah. he's never, <laughs> you know, he's seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure because it's one of the greatest movies ever, but uh, in my opinion. But, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, great. We, we rewatched the Christmas special, and oh, my God. I remember thinking, I grew up thinking that Whoopi Goldberg was purple because of the coloration <laughs> when she showed up on the picture phone. Uh-huh. Yeah, anyway, um, sorry, I interrupted you. The color purple. Yeah, Um, (laughs) exactly. 
it's something people forget is this period in the 90s where network TV got especially raunchy uh, before Columbine. Co- Columbine and then like 9 11 mm-hmm. caused them to like censor things a lot more. Oh. But in the mid 90s, there was like, like NYPD Blue is foul. Uh, just uh, I remember that being controversial. Yeah, it was when they were like pushing the envelope in terms of nudity. And it's not just nudity, it has these like, Long lingering, like Skinamax softcore <laughs> erotic sex scenes, um, that just seem unthinkable on network TV now. And then there was stuff like they would find ways of, uh, you know, showing nudity and some kind of like moral guys. Like there's a Meredith Baxter Bernie movie called My Breast about breast oh cancer. <laughs> and the like, you know, kind of big feature of it is that it shows her getting an actual breast exam, but it's like it's educating you about breast cancer. So you can see <laughs> Meredith Baxter Bernie's giant tit being squeezed <laughs> by a doctor at like 7 p.m. in a movie called My Breast. But oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I, I don't remember if I ever uh, saw that. That sounds. That I've been sounds obsessed horrifying, with actually. Baxter Bernie recently, so I'm <laughs> going through. It her brings Uber. back memory to the miracle of birth video, though, with that woman's like just like horse mane vagina. Oh yeah, like, <laughs> they like picked the worst vagina possible yeah. on purpose. <laughs> One thing, and and you actually, you actually think that there should be like, uh, like a like a panel or like a society of tastemakers elite um, council yeah um you're you, like you don't say in my opinion a lot like it's it's more you, you kind of just say it like it is or how you think it is i is the is the in my opinion or i think like supposed to be inferred or do you really think that uh what you believe what you say is like the objective truth um it's the objective truth to me I don't know. Like, I um, I just don't really, like, embroider everything I say with a bunch of, like, qualifiers, yeah. which I feel are unnecessary. And people find this, like, impossible because you're supposed to be kind of, like, mealy-mouthed and, and apologetic. It's just a way that you're taught to speak. Yeah. And especially the higher you get up the academic ladder. And I learned from Camille Paglia, who speaks in, like, declarative True. sentences and makes people mad to say it's just like exceptions to the rule are self-evident and it's self-evident that what i say is like my opinion it's mm. just like i don't think it's necessary to frame it with this like now this is just what i think but i do i feel i don't even feel like i'm that like intense or anything <laughs> with what no, i say but people it's, react not like, with such it's a- not like you're it's not like you're intense it's just it's just that you you really are you like I don't know how to describe it. It's not dogmatic. It's like your opinions are very hard and fast. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I do like quite simply think that most people in terms of like art <laughs> have bad taste and yeah. bad opinions. And I, I, uh, everybody's good at different things. Like I'm, I'm a total failure at like math and science and like technical, technological, kind of uh, male brain type stuff. But like culture was simply better when there was like a group of elite tastemakers, which is like when journalism was good and when like film criticism was good, that's how it functioned. Mm -hmm. So you had some, uh, someone like Pauline Kael 
ensuring that the masses saw Last Tango in Paris and Nashville, movies that most people would be totally averse to normally. Yeah, I never seen um, either of those. Because it's nice when there's an elite tastemaker, people start to feel uncomfortable delivering their little small brained opinion on whatever <laughs> it is. Um, but now it's just the letterbox mindset, which is everybody speaks of everything in this kind of safe, negative way and as if they're the first person who ever like watched a classic movie and didn't like it yeah um why do you call that the letterbox mindset i i, I, I actually have never even looked at letterboxd i just imagine that's what it's like i it's how people talk about movies now okay uh especially young people it's and especially libs it's always this process of I'm watching this beloved classic that everyone thinks is so great, and I'm the first person in history to discover oh, that actually Letter- it's bad. Okay, I get it. Letterboxd is like a film review. Social oh yeah, it's like, it's like the social media you, thing. I thought you were talking about like the narrow constraints of the black bars oh, no. on the top <laughs> of the TV or something like that. No, it's like a movie okay. review thing. I'm sure it's totally fine. Good. I mean, I like I should probably do it myself. Um, yeah do you do you write somewhere? I know you've you've talked about writing, but uh, I've never uh, actually read. No, anything. I should. I mean, I'm kind <laughs> of acclimating myself to having more time yeah. to do creative stuff and how to spend it. So I definitely should. But I also think that like blogging is over, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think you know all these like dirtbag leftists try to make Substack happen, and <laughs> I I just don't really think it's there. <laughs> Substack, is, Substack is a great place for for the right and dissident thinkers, though, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's fine, but like people don't have this excitement about blog posts anymore. Yeah. Like there, there's the, the resentment of podcasts, the the received resentment of podcasts, where everybody's mad about podcasts all day, and they're like podcasts are over, and that's clearly like uh, because podcasts are experiencing unprecedented influence and popularity. Yeah. Yeah. Right now. Meanwhile, the Substack people are like just doing blogging from the early 2000s and just on a platform. The, the only way that that gets out to people is like one person reads it and like screenshots a little part of it that will go viral. And then mm-hmm. that part <laughs> gets circulated. You know, it's not, it's not like everybody's reading entire articles all day. Yeah. So I've been up until very recently. Um, like in the middle of COVID, basically, just all caught up in my own little insular bubble of libertarian theory and uh, criticizing, you know, people who don't exist, basically. Um, so I kind of missed some of I kind of missed some of some of the stuff that you talk about. Um, I'd like to ask about some of that. Like you say that Karen is a psyop, mm-hmm. uh, and I feel like I feel like you're probably right, but I don't know why. Like, I, I recognize the busybody, like, neoliberal suburban woman as, like, you know, I mean, I've lived next door to her before. But, uh, like, w- why do you think that it's a psyop rather than a real thing? Um, Karen is a psyop because it arose right when they started imbuing the COVID narrative with Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. propaganda and George Floyd and riots. And they in their dazzling star move, the liberals revealed that the real virus was uh, white white supremacy. supremacy. So Karen came out at like the same time 
And Karen is this like nonsensical composite character. Like they use that meme of like the woman with like the Kate Gosselin kind of like peacock hair sticking up in yeah. the back with the chunky highlights, which is something that doesn't exist anymore. So first of all, there's that. It's okay, safe I to actually laugh. Saw, I saw a woman with a haircut. With that but haircut by and large, the, the, yeah. the type of, the real like <laughs> yeah, people that yeah. they're referring to do not have that hair. And everyone kind of agrees that hair is like funny. Yeah. Um. So it's something that doesn't really exist. It's kind of dated. So it's safe to laugh at, first of all. And then Karen also represents just, uh, rerouting animosity towards uh, this liberal race science and deliberately instigated uh, riots and propaganda into this like safety valve of pretending it's all because of white women, mm. uh, like tone-deaf, narcissistic uh, white women. And so there was a period for a few years where women were always depicted as like uh, heroes and, you know, noble and everything. And then now we're in the period where white women are always depicted as the villain. Yeah. And they're always tone deaf. And there's always like a, a smirky uh, woman of color who is having none of it with her arms crossed, who is sick of Karen and her narcissism and her entitlement. And this is a way. Uh, also pretending that the problems of the Democrat Party and the problems of liberals are actually because of narcissistic white people is a safe way to avoid addressing the real problems of the Democrat Party. And it's what I call dirtbag left, where they find ways to um, avoid addressing any inconvenient or dangerous problem, which is the entirety of, you know, the the 2010s liberal race science construction and social justice and all of this. So they can just pretend with a safe target that it's, oh, it, actually, this is just Black Lives Matter is good. It's just bad because uh, narcissistic white people co-opted it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the purpose that something like Karen serves. And also Karen is used disturbingly to um, ensure that just like the quality of everything is shitty everywhere, like the quality of like service at restaurants and everything. Now there's, it's gone from like, um, there not being enough sympathy for like service workers mm -hmm. to now there's far too much. And then, yeah. then they all act like they're fucking French or something. Well, you know, like, like every time I go into a restaurant, like post COVID era, it's like, they'll just announce we're actually closing in an hour and a half. <laughs> you know, like that's a, and this this feeds into the like if you complain about anything or like insist upon anything at all, then you're a Karen kind of. It's it's yeah. all of these different things, but it's creating this like straw man like composite entity that you can safely blame your resentment of other things on. I think I've successfully insulated myself from things like that because I've by and large abandoned the city. Like I, I live, I live real close to downtown. Um, and I, it's just straight up the ghetto, mm -hmm. but like, I don't, I don't go uptown. I basically hang out in the suburbs. I go to a lot of dives and that's sort of my scene now. So, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like you expect, you expect bad service at a dive bar, but friendly service when they do pay attention to you and it's, you know, decent food and all that. So I, I think that's just sort of where I'm at. Uh, I'm, I'm also, I'm really glad that like, I didn't buy a house, uh, before two years ago or so, because like, I know I would be just the 
person who would be knocking down walls and uh, opening up the living room so that it's the, the great room and Open eating where I, sh- where I cook and cooking where I try to watch TV and stuff. And so, like, I, I think probably my architectural aesthetics would have changed anyway had I not, mm-hmm. like, discovered your podcast. But now I kind of, or and especially your, your RU course, um, now I kind of understand why. Uh, it really is like a like a plot by the, <laughs> by the powers that be to yeah to make to everything this, a like, panopticon <laughs> and yeah exactly. <laughs> so again, this is the stuff that I, that I've missed um, because I didn't pay attention to what was really happening. I paid attention to uh, the, the books and the and the and the the debates on on a stage rather than the real fights that are happening. Um, you also say that uh, that Obama like reintrodu- reintroduced or reinvented racism. How and when did that happen? Yeah, if you remember the 90s and 2000s, racism was solved. It was yeah. a thing in the past. Oh, totally. And, uh, you know, the kind of 90s multiculturalism, which liberals mock now as being tone-deaf Karen material mm-hmm. um, and, like, white entitlement and all of this, that was actually the best solution. <laughs> and the only, uh-huh. the workable one, because, you know, basically the message we were all instilled with was that uh, you shouldn't... Uh, treat people negatively or judge them based on their appearance or their race. And that's enough. And then the, in the early 2010s, uh, second Obama administration, he like, it was unveiled that actually having black friends does not mean that you're not racist. Um, which was the first time I saw the libs really like go too far because this is just patently like common sense stuff. Like mm. if you are able to like people of other races and care for them enough to the extent that you consider them friends, you're not a racist that needs to be like systematically dealt with. But the liberals unveiled that actually everyone's like brain and like inner inner narrative must be policed and rerouted and changed and and there is uh, invisible, lurking systemic racism yeah. behind everything, and the unconscious mm, bias. Yes, yeah. and things like the idea of uh, colorblindness, of choosing the best person for the job—that uh, is actually racist too, mm-hmm. because you must artificially elevate the minority in every situation. You know, which is bullshit. Everyone knows that this is this is bullshit, yeah. but that's how it works now. It's it's just a flat equation of black equals black equals good, white equals bad. Now, so <laughs> it's it's a this uh, crazy crazy replacement religion based around the worship of imaginary black people, mm-hmm. um, and. I mean, that's what led to the present moment, just these constant, successive, increasing, shrill, crazy psyops of racism lurking in every corner that has to be rooted out. And it's, of course, deliberate because that's, you know, like abortion or something, that's an emotionally appealing um, thing that they can fundraise with that, you know, the average person who doesn't think too much of this can see something that says Black Lives Matter and think, oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Which is why it's well-designed, because you can't like disagree with that. Um, but it's just fundraising for Democrats, for this Democrat behemoth, and they don't 
the way that the Democrat Party functions is it's never intended to solve any of these problems because then they would be out of work. Yeah. You know, like, so they have to make up new problems. And the, the most obvious example, uh, make up new problems in new minorities. And the most obvious example was after they finally got gay marriage, they immediately invented transgender people mm-hmm. as the new minority to fundraise for. That, yeah, that's what I was going to, I was going to, I was going to ask that. Why do you think it is that, and this, that's probably the answer, that the, that the gay debate was allowed to end, whereas the abortion debate has just continued to carry on for what we're approaching 50 years now. You can only go so far with the regular, normal gay men, I guess. Mm -hmm. And now regular, normal gay men are demonized and, you know, basically hit the, like, the the top of the white privilege pyramid, uh, you know, and this is just because they're men and men must not be allowed to like congregate because men are naturally rebellious and yeah, <laughs> intellectually it, superior. And uh, that's why I'm so like Dave Rubin, when whatever he fucking does that, I'm gay, that thing. Like, we know mm. you're gay, dude. Nobody cares anymore. Like, stop doing that. You're no longer a victim. Like, you, you do not have any cultural cachet by being gay. Like, it's just not a thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get anything from being regular gay. Now, you know, yeah. you don't get you don't get to take advantage of any like affirmative action measures. <laughs> Maybe at like a if you're trying to get hired at like a Chili's or something, they'll be like, "Oh, he's gay. This will be in it," you know. But yeah. not anywhere that like matters. Well, and y- they're going to hire mean, the woman. Yeah, and, e- every job you ever apply for now, they're going to hire a woman instead of you. If you're not. <laughs> If you're not Twinkie and flamboyant, then it doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah. I don't think anyway. I, I like I've never. Well, I, I guess I've I've been in like corporate America since before this was really a thing. So I, I guess I don't really know. But like, you know, if you're not a if you're not a mascot, then what's the point? Because everything's symbolic. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it, you can observe the way. That the like um, the status of regular gay men. I'm not. I refuse to say cisgender, um, <laughs> but the status of regular gay men has gone down because all of the like prior generation of gay celebrities, they've all kind of had to retcon into this <laughs> gender f- ambiguous kind of thing. Like yeah. Mark Jacobs specifically, it was this very cynical move. Uh, by like you know the count the shadow council of people at like LVMH like telling him you can't sell regular gay men anymore. So he just started wearing mm-hmm. dresses and like oh wigs and stuff and being like I don't identify as anything. And that's what they all do now. And it's a cynical marketing ploy. You've called yourself gender nonconforming, and Camille Paglia also calls herself trans. You're clearly a dude. She's clearly a chick. What's the what's the what's the nuance that I'm missing there? Um, that I generally like girly stuff. Mm, Um, I mean, if I was a child growing up today, there would be a 27 year old, uh, teacher or counselor telling me that I was transgender, Mm. um, because I just like girl stuff and hung out with girls when I was younger. Um, and that's what like the transgender ideology is like weirdly, reactionary and conformist because 
any trace of like gender nonconformity is actually seen as a reason that you were born in the wrong body, um, which is ridiculous. And, you know, I think, I think that you can, uh, present however you want, but the problem with transgender ideology is fundamentally, um, being unable to accept the body that you've been given, mm-hmm. which I think is a satanic bargain and a satanic deal that leads straight to hell. Um, and this is why so many transgenders end in suicide. It's, it's this belief that you can alter the fabric of reality. <laughs> and, and, and like all the, the political ideology that stems from that is toxic and poisonous. But like, you know, if you accept who you are, you can do whatever in terms of gender presentation. Not that it's that exciting mm-hmm. anymore to do any of that. I mean, everyone's sick of all of it. Um, but I do tend to relate to women's media more. I think my kind of political alienation of the 2010s in large part happened because I had always been closer to women and had tons of women friends. And then women just changed on mass. Yeah. Uh, as the, the Democrat political propaganda started to get to them and they just were not fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like weird hectoring, hateful nuns going around. So is that, I guess, is that where the, uh, where your like affinity for the Red Scare girls comes in, like you just were, like you just needed oh, yeah. some girlfriends. Is that? Um, I mean, yeah. The, when I first heard them, they reminded me of when, <laughs> when women were fun. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And also, you know, in the current cultural climate, you can get away with different things as a girl oh, uh, yeah. than if you're a guy. Obviously, because girls don't face any real consequences for anything that they do. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. like straight up they don't they don't face the same kind of like cancellation consequences that men do at all and mm-hmm. like me too is entirely of course designed to uh you know oust men from power and me tooing a woman does not have the same like effects as me tooing a man um but girls can get away with a lot more like subversive content because people underestimate them Especially if they don't present themselves as being like, hello, I'm number one Republican female, you know, Candace Owens or whatever, like, you know, that kind of presentation. (laughs) If you simply don't present yourself as that, you can, you have a lot more freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and do you think that cancel culture is thawing a little bit? Mm, Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of, uh, bitter little write-ups of this scene that are starting to increase that we see on like BuzzFeed and everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's clearly a kind of sour grapes jealousy and they're really interested in what's going on here and they're seeing that it's like viable and that people think it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so so for instance the the BuzzFeed write-up of BuzzFeed hit piece write-up of the NPCC fest just read as a puff promo piece to me, even though it has this surface libtard negativity where he's like ostensibly condemning what's going on. And he has to like, uh, prize out this narrative of like black people being noble martyrs to kind of frame it. But it's clear that it's just like a libtard journalist, 
um, sensing that something is cool and being mad about it and being really interested in it and, you know, being jealous. And there's a, there's just, that's increasing a lot. I think of course, since COVID has disappeared in the last two weeks, um, (laughs) people are enjoying a new level of freedom since that was made to disappear. And, you know, I, all of the all of the libs that supported draconian COVID measures and ruined the lives of anyone who spoke out against it are now going mm-hmm. to pretend that they never did that. And I frankly don't want to hear it. Um, I don't care about <laughs> people this late, uh, you know, being red pilled. I'm not happy yeah. for you. Yeah, we're, <laughs> at all. <laughs> we're kind of we're kind of past that point, which is yeah. why I'm glad I got out of the the business of philosophical debates on Facebook. <laughs> Speaking of COVID, you guys, you guys, it seems like you really kind of for about a week there bought into the, oh my God, this is huge. Everybody's going to die. But then, I mean, within, within a very short amount of time, way shorter than even I, who I've been questioning all of the, all of the mandates and propaganda for, you know, since almost the very beginning, what did you guys see that made you realize, oh, this is not what they're presenting it as? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple of those early episodes happened. There was one month where it was really exciting right yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. The month where they were all like the the toilet paper shortages yes. and everybody was like rapidly buying groceries. I'm still I I have I have a closet full of toilet paper from the, is two <laughs> it years takes old. forever to go through this. But, um <laughs> yeah, I had my like COVID toilet paper stash for like a year after that. Um mm. But there was that fun month where suddenly all like Trump and cancel culture and all of that was totally forgotten because there yeah. was like a new threat that people genuinely didn't know what it was. And it seemed pretty real. Like, like it seemed for that month, like it was going to be like Stephen King's The Stand where there would just be corpses in the street. <laughs> um, and I, have then, a, I, I know a guy who's convinced that, and th- there's no way that this is true, but like he he has told me, that living in Manhattan, he saw dead bodies piling in the street. And I'm like, dude, you have, there is absolutely no way that you saw that. No, like, there were those no stories. I was actually talking about this with someone really early on. There were those completely insane news stories about like mass graves in Central Park. Yeah. This has been totally memory hold. And uh, the, yeah. the, but I remember it. And as proof that there were mass graves in Central Park, they had this like, blurry picture of what looked like the tent that they take ET into. Yeah. Um oh <laughs> another another one of my guests, uh Brian, he was actually um he did the he did the porta potty rental for one of those for one of those um stage productions basically uh for the local news. They set up this big tent, they had everybody in their hazmat suits. Um they pretended to give someone a COVID test and then they then they just, just took everything down after they after they got the footage they needed and and took everything away. Um it was this, co- uh-huh. this supposed covid testing site and it was completely fake right at the very oh, beginning. Oh and the the mass graves in Central Park occurred yeah. simultaneous to the nurses dancing on TikTok in empty <laughs> hospitals. So that's what the, they had to do away with the nurses yeah. really quick cuz yeah. it was all the videos of the nurses in totally empty hospitals dancing on TikTok. That is so while nice. they're telling you their graves in Central Park. <laughs> Just insane. <laughs> How did so many people fall for it? Um, is it the same people that are follow, falling for, you know, putting Ukraine flags on their profile pictures to... They fell for it when the race science was injected into it. 
Oh, uh, really? that, I mean, okay. that was, that was how, uh, the liberals won that. That's how they did oh, what they did that. with the okay. election. No, cause there, there was, there was too much solidarity about it early on. Cancel yeah. culture was going away. Nobody cared about Trump that month. They, there was a real kind of uniform kind of sense of fun and, and excitement mm-hmm. and adrenaline about it. And then um, the George Floyd event occurred and they deliberately tied up the COVID narrative with white supremacy and Black Lives Matter. And so objecting to COVID authoritarianism then became a signifier that you were a right. racist. So and that's, that's how they got away with it. And that's why all those bros that were partying down in Alabama and Florida uh, were both white supremacists and also super spreaders. And a racist is, of course, the worst thing, the single worst thing uh, you can be called now besides pedophile. Um, right. So most people, if they see that level of propaganda, which was, you know, just insane the way it was laid on so thick, and also the deliberate, um juxtaposition of how they would depict the evils of like white covid protesters getting together you know the dangerous alt-right applebee's uh white trash ignorant covid objectors versus the peaceful black lives matter rallies which do not spread covid (laughs) Yeah, and th- th- this is you know straight up what they said. They said yeah. that gathering does not spread COVID, and this one does. So, I mean, this, especially as they're forcing you to stay in your house and making you afraid of like the very fabric of your life, this level of propaganda like literally drove people crazy. And since it's been two years of it, I think a lot of the people that sort of fell for it and believed it just simply choose not to think about it and choose to enjoy uh, their returning freedom again without thinking too much about what occurred. But I could tell the whole time, as soon as the masks came around and the masks uh, became this religious garment Mm -hmm. that there were so many arguments over um, and it was so heated about them, that's when I knew it was going to be really, really bad and that that would not go away. And I always, and still do, find the masks a bigger problem than the vaccine. Yeah, totally. I think the obsessive focus on the vaccine and the vaccine mandates has been counterproductive for Republicans. I, yep. And I've thought that since the beginning. Um, I don't care that much about the vaccine. I, I don't really, I don't think it's like the number of the beast <laughs> that they yeah. I don't think they're injecting you with a microchip. I straight up don't think that. But normalizing masks and making it illegal not to wear them in public, that alters the aesthetics and morality of yeah. American life in a way far more important. It changes how we perceive one another. And, 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 it changes how we build society, which I, I believe is sort of like the, the purpose of humanity uh, is to be pro-social. Um, mm-hmm. It anonymizes us and makes us inherently antisocial. The same thing with, you know, metaverse and, and the fact that I can say whatever the hell I want to to somebody on Twitter who, you know, is just an avatar as far as I'm concerned that I would never say to them in, in person. Right. It's all kind of the same thing. And masks just brings that into the real world. Uh, which is, you know, even worse. Um, the, you would never have someone shouting at somebody in a grocery store 
without without a mask on. I don't mm-hmm. think. I hope not. I mean, it happened to me once, and it was it's really unnerving till it happens mm-hmm. to you. You don't understand. No, like it, it, there was, and especially early on when I was still working at the condo, I was constantly having to like negotiate and deal with insane complaints from like COVID fanatic residents who had like glimpsed someone walking down the hall uh, without a mask. And they would just basically want like maximum penalty. Like they wanted me to like beat people up for not wearing masks. And it was (laughs) completely like, it was the first time that I'd been in a situation that like, was that intense and also mm. just like the prevailing thought I knew was so wrong. Like I had learned well enough how to deal with libtards and Trump derangement syndrome by the end of Trump. And then this new psyop was launched yeah. with COVID where the libtards literally exist as a face covering on your body. This like tentacle rape, <laughs> like that's what you have to do to um, show your solidarity with what they think. Um, but it was like a really intense and emotional time because I just knew that it was wrong. And, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like I'll get laughed at for comparing it to the Holocaust. <laughs> I did the show episode, but like, that's a situation where everybody pretends that they would have been on the right side and they would, mm-hmm. they would have somehow done something. What would you do <laughs> if you're in Poland and the concentration? What could you do? Yeah. Nothing. But like that with this gave me this like small taste of what it's like to have the entirety of, you know, the like bureaucratic and political propaganda operating systems working in service of something that I knew to be deeply, deeply wrong and evil and it affecting me on this personal level where I have to like pretend to go along with it in order to keep my job. Yeah. My one friend who completely bought into all of it and uh, is still wearing a mask. Like he, care, he he doesn't wear it around me because he knows I'll give him shit for it. But like he, he carries it in his pocket. And um, when the, there was rumors that the governor was going to lock us back down last winter and he was like, oh man, I hope he does. You know, we got to stop this thing. He, he just completely bought into it. And now... Um, other than carrying a mask in his pocket and advocating for, you know, everybody to get vaccinated, he realizes that, you know, the lockdowns really didn't do anything. He can see the charts and graphs that, you know, compare lockdown places to non-lockdown places. And um, intellectually, he knows that the stuff that he was advocating for did absolutely nothing. And yet he is buying a Ukrainian flag bandana for his dog. Good gosh. Like, I do not know what goes through the mind of someone who can recognize propaganda for what it is and continue to believe it. Uh, are, are you, do you, do you have any clue? You, you're around more people than I am. <laughs> There's a certain type of person that I often just call the spiritual libtard where they uh. just simply like conformity and they like peace. Most women are like sure. this actually. They just like everyone to do what they're supposed to do. And, you know, even if that's wrong sometimes, that's fine because it's what you're supposed to do. People like that kind of guidance. And it's a liberalism now is this just software update for Mm. (laughs) NPCs, for non playable characters. So 
they just give you the, the new software update via your smartphone and you learn what you're Boy. supposed to say and think and object to and what kind of imaginary enemy you're supposed to be mad about. And that's the end of it. And that's fine. And I like keeping things peaceful, but I'm not one of these people. And I've always just had to say the truth. Mm. Like <laughs> there's no option for me. Like I've, I've stayed exactly the same my entire life. Uh, nothing changed about me. Um, it's the pictures that got smaller and uh, it's, you see it. If you read the fountainhead, you see it. <laughs> like people are, people are Ellsworth Tuies. Like the, the, vil the villain of the fountainhead is Ellsworth Tuie, the like newspaper man who uh, is, is a libtard subversive communist and just basically wants mediocrity and conformity everywhere. Just, just, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, that's this is just like what he stands for. And if anything rises above that, it causes problems. It causes disorder and disruption. Um, but the Ukraine stuff, like, I can't even begin to, I'm too tired to even like make fun yeah. of it. I know. <laughs> like, I know. Like, I'm so relieved that they did away with COVID um, that I, I'm too tired to make fun of it. But it is absolutely chilling the the way that streaming and the internet is utilized like that disney pulling the anastasia movie was especially disturbing to me this is an american movie that just is about russia oh wow i didn't know that happened that's insane and, and now just, now facebook's like publicly you know coming out allowing violent sentiments towards Russians. And this doesn't surprise me at all because I've yeah. known that libtards were evil the whole time. Like this is this is just, you know, they're being more explicit about it than ever before. Um so it's no surprise to me. But I don't understand like I have no emotional reaction to the idea of Russians. Like this russophobia yeah. that they've worked yeah. up for 5 6 years where Trump was somehow blamed on Russia, you know, and it didn't matter that it was proven to be all fake. Yeah. It's crazy to me that like the average libtard, gray skinned NPC with dead eyes is able to like get mad about the Russians. Yeah. Like, I'm, really? Is this I'm, a real emotion you have? <laughs> what really, su what really sucks about me is that I, I, I have a feeling like, I'm like a I'm like an NPC who has figured out how to hack his software or something like that. Because my first instinct, like I heard someone speaking Russian on the phone yesterday in the locker room at the gym, minding his own damn business. And my first instinct was like, oh shit, that's a Russian. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. He's probably lived here for longer than you have. <laughs> but, but what are the saying, Russians gonna do to you? That's yeah, why I don't exactly. I mean, like Yeah. Like just because they got like put pussy riot in jail you're supposed to be scared of that like that's literally the only thing that uh was like a big like media event it seems was like putting these feminists in jail it's like yeah. i'm fine with that yeah <laughs> i know the, those memes were those memes where it's like russia's banning uh facebook and youtube and and uh you know decadence basically uh they're they're gonna they're gonna come they're gonna come they're out of this banning so mcdonald's and it's like wow this is just uh you know the recipe for a healthy civilization yeah. <laughs> you mentioned earlier uh 
you said that um, like the transgender ideology is sort of the definition of hell. And you also, I'm going to read a quote from a previous episode. It was, uh, the impulse for social work and activism is satanic and evil and demonic, and it means you're a bad person and you don't know how the world works. Um, you guys say satanic and evil and demonic and hell and these religious tainted words, tainted, tinged words, tinted words. That's the word I was looking for. A lot. What is sort of your theology, if there is one, or if not, then what do you mean by satanic? Uh, well, I grew up Southern Baptist, not particularly strict. Uh. Um, I pray, I believe in God. I consider myself a Christian. I don't really believe in organized religion and think that's kind of typically pretty corrupt. Um, when I say satanic and hell and evil, I mean, look at the false religion mm. that libtards have constructed. There's no path to redemption. All it does is yeah. destroy. So the these words like woke and cancel culture, I don't think that they're serious enough. Like they make it sound like a joke when if you get if you buy into that system and you get canceled, it's like a vampiric act where you have to like both drink each other's blood because you have to agree to be canceled. Mm -hmm. Obvi obviously, yeah. Obviously, you know, the 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 canceling side has endlessly more power than you, but by apologizing or by buying into their hypothesis or framework, you're agreeing that they are correct. When the solution, obviously, is to do what Trump does and just simply not acknowledge any of it, not apologize for anything, because it's all fake anyway. So when I describe it, the transgender stuff is evil because of the, as I said, because of the belief that you can alter the fabric of reality and you <clears> can alter everyone's memories. It's just this kind of like belief that you have the power of God. Um to change whatever you want. And typically it ends with you 35 years old killing yourself because you realize that <laughs> this was all in vain. Um, yeah. I think that like liberalism is, has for so long been considered what good people do because they have this capacity for empathy. It's all presented as. Again, as you see, as you see, sketched out, mapped out brilliantly in the Fountainhead, um, it's all mapped out as we have to think of others, we have to sacrifice for others. Um, if you have too much self confidence, you are taking away from others, uh, those less fortunate than you. Um, but this ideology is only like on the surface for Democrats, and it's it's all just a corrupt authoritarian system of control and all of the problems that they continue to rail on about and often invent themselves are just to keep themselves installed in power and keep fundraising. It's just... It's just so hard to like separate the idea of like liberal empathy and like charity from Democrats, from like um, from what Democrats actually do. Mm -hmm. 
which often I don't even think they know that's what they're doing. Like they, they, they most, a lot of them probably believe it. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's just the same as any organized religion. Um, there are people who don't take into consideration the, the, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of how Jesus criticized the Pharisees, really. I mean, they, they held to the letter of the law. They had no idea the motions that they were going through and what impact they had on their psyche, their spirit, and society as a whole. Mm-hmm. So you don't like political theory. I know that. But is there is there like a camp that you identify the most with? I'm guessing it's not the trad religious right or the no. trad like medievalist, medieval, like let's return to the crusades. But I, I don't you know, relate I don't, to trad anything. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't see you like wrapping yourself on the flag and being like the thin blue line type either. Um, is there? Like, I'm more so of that. I'm more just like a boring like MAGA Republican. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm like a, the kind of Republican that people's parents are. Kind of. Basically, my political sentiment comes down to I don't care so much about like discussing the minutia of policy every day, but you should vote against Democrats for the rest of your life because. <laughs> Life is cheap and plentiful and functions better under yeah. Republican rule. This is just an observable fact. Anytime Democrats are in power, everything becomes expensive and shitty. And they just throw wrenches in the wheels of progress, essentially, with all of their bizarre social causes from plastic bags and everything like climate change related the only effect it has for you, the average middle-class American citizen, is that it makes your life shittier and more expensive. Yeah. The current thing is gas prices. I mean, in the two weeks or whatever, when this is posted, it probably will be And it started the second he got elected. I mean, yeah, the, like, the, next, the next day, <laughs> the gas prices skyrocketed. I've seen on more than one Instagram story, like, Th- thanks, Putin. You need to end this war so our gas can go back to normal. Like, dude, come on. Like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> this this is this is clearly because of because of the regulations on the domestic oil production. Oh God! Why do place. people find it so impossible it's- to blame <laughs> Democrats for the things that they do? And this is the whole this whole nefarious construction of the dirtbag left, where spiritual libtards will you know get canceled. Something will happen. They'll get red pilled enough so that they realize something is wrong. You know, they they were disappointed by Bernie Sanders yeah. or whatever. And then they so they find themselves slumming with the people like us, with the conservatives. And they always think that they're better than you. Um, and they think that you're actually wrong. And they're looking for ways to go back to the safety of being a regular NPC libtard yeah. Democrat every opportunity. And this it comes in this this false guise of anti-political correctness. Like people like Tim Dillon are total spiritual libtards where you look at the content Hmm. and you think, oh, that is like, he is really speaking the truth. I can't believe he's saying this as a comedian. But then you, once you learn to read it, you realize that the message of it is always like milquetoast Democrat conformity. It's always both sides, actually both sides of the problem, which in the long run ends up supporting Democrats. Yeah. And the whole like dirtbag left, like, oh, I don't believe in voting. This is something they've always done. I don't believe in voting. Oh, really? Which means, yeah, uh, voting is gay. This is all the like New York, like Dime Square ones go. I don't believe in voting. 
Um, so you're not actually responsible for being, you're not owning up to being one of the like, quote unquote, bad people. You're not actually a Republican because you didn't vote for them. I thought that was only a libertarian thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you you vote, you're not allowed to complain. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So one last question, and then I want to get a bit of a reflection from you and then we can, then we can go. Um, you bringing up Bernie Sanders just now reminded me of Andrew Yang and how much you hate him. How did Andrew Yang ruin the right? Um, so what happened with Andrew Yang was on Twitter before that, there was a total like jubilant consensus about the greatness of Trump as both as a political figure and as a meme. Mm. And everybody enjoyed Trump. They enjoyed uh, his image, you know, and then Yang came in and Yang, much like the uh third-party political candidate in Robert Altman's Nashville, which I just covered, uh, Hal Philip yeah. Walker, is this, like, spoiler candidate intended to, like, uh, funnel people over um, from the right. And so he, like, paid, like, alt-right troll guys to, like, meme him really aggressively. Oh, what? At the beginning. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a fact. <laughs> oh, my God. And so you you come on Twitter one day, and suddenly, if you mention Trump positively at all, then you are ruthlessly quote tweeted oh and God. you know just driven into the ground. And all of these guys declared Trump over in the span of one week. Um, they, it's this kind of like ironic, nihilistic, Yang Gang like capture the bag mm-hmm. uh, attitude became the accepted thing. Every single person except for me and my friends, like the TPN guys, literally everyone cowed to it, including Bronze Age pervert after he was bullied uh, by his little, you know, big account friends for like saying Yang was a psyop. Like two days later, he integrated Yang into his little like mythology. It was so lame. No one spoke out against it except for us. And it's just like, you see this kind of meme thinking and the way that it's implemented um, and how pathetic it is. And uh, like after that, you started seeing all of these 2016 MAGA guys complaining about how evil Donald Trump had like isolated them from their families. And like, you know, Trump was suddenly responsible for everything bad that had happened Mm. to them. And Yang went nowhere. And just like everything libtards do, it was memory hold. He had to... Uh, you know, a couple months later, when he got bigger, he had to like officially disavow the the alt right guys that he'd paid. <laughs> God, it's, believe it or not, political geniuses that they are, a bunch of libertarians are now uh, running for the forward party uh, under Yang's <laughs> banner. So, so he didn't go nowhere. He's got libertarians behind him too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that Trump is going to run in twenty twenty four? And uh, really, I think the more interesting question. Do you think that like the Durham investigation that is supposedly just going to blow the lid off Russiagate finally and the, you know, QAnon saying that Omicron was a, was a bioweapon that was supposed to end the pandemic and by God it worked. Do you think there's truth to, truth to this stuff and that Trump's going to like just come back in on a white horse? Um, mm. Do you think we're doomed or uh, somewhere in between? I don't know. I don't really follow it. I literally don't look at the news. Um, Good. I mean, who, whatever Republican runs in 2024, I'll vote for him. And I would love for it to be Trump. I would love for Trump to 
triumphantly return. But I mean, the fact of it is, he's just very, very old. Like how yeah. how long can people this old <laughs> keep running the country? Like like all all of the you know so called elites, they're all like eighty years old. Yeah. Um. But I'm happy to see Trump anywhere, and I'd be I'd be thrilled if he ran again. He kicked COVID's ass a hell of a lot I faster mean, the, than I did. So the problem will be. And the biggest problem has always been the like deplatforming and the the kind of corporate tech censorship working in service of Democrats, which has of yep. course gotten more and more extreme as the, they find insane. ways to um, put into their terms of service. Basically, you know, not being a Democrat is against terms of service. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that's you, the message. YouTube went from censoring COVID misinformation, quote unquote, because it's going to, it's you know, people could die to censoring Russia misinformation because, well, that's not what we want you to say. Yeah. Um, so you and I were very similar. Um, we both played high school football in Texas. We both, like, I think you said recently, like, you've looked 35 since you were 15. And, like, my mom's dry cleaner thought that we were a couple forever. <laughs> like... Do you have any advice for the young, like teenager or college student who is kind of in that in that position, specifically like a gay college, a gay gay young college student who isn't twinky and is dealing with like self esteem issues and all that stuff? I I don't know if you had self esteem issues or not, but um, uh, I have more of them now. <laughs> I'm a public <laughs> that I'm a public I never had them before doing a podcast um, <laughs> um but I would say well the advice I would go back and give myself is just stay in, stay on the football team I would love if I'd ended up a rich I athlete I, dude, I quit of, I, I quit football my junior so I played junior year uh, on JV and then senior year I didn't play varsity because I wanted to be able to hang out with the boy I had a crush on who yeah. didn't play football on Friday nights. I wanted like, to be able to watch <laughs> David Lynch movies instead yeah. of playing football. Um, <laughs> that is my biggest regret, actually. It's one of them anyway. <laughs> yeah, and, and now, like, this whole, like, right-wing trad bodybuilder movement is based around, like, nerds and incels, like, uh -huh. in their 20s, pretending to be, like, athletic chads. Yeah. And, like, you know, it's like, we're, like you self-actualize, you know, it's not like the, the effects aren't real. Of course they are. Um, but you'll never be, like, one of the real chads that didn't have to think about it <laughs> you know like the, like i'll never like i will still like the the idea of like pe period and all of that will still like strike social terror into my heart because i always hated that i always hated that because i just looked like a fool because i didn't understand it and i i like looking you know i like being admired for being good at things. And then sports were always just like this ritualistic humiliation where <laughs> I have such bad coordination that I can't like throw a wad of paper into the trash can, like three <laughs> feet away. I tried um, to throw, I tried to throw something the other day. That was a big mistake. It was, <laughs> and then, but then normal people just have it. Like yeah. normal people like throw their keys to each other through all of it. You know, <laughs> normal people have it. Um, but I'm always going to be that person. I don't know. I just think that you should, if you realize you're good at something else, <laughs> then, then do that. Um, yeah. But uh, the advice that I would give uh, is to be normal, 
don't, uh, you know, focus on intellectual and physical self-improvement, educate yourself outside of the system and what's acceptable. Um, As far as self-esteem issues, I mean, it's all about, it truly is all about confidence. So if you exhibit bulldozer self-esteem, then someone will find you sexy. (laughs) nice yeah and like i grew up during the the like era of peak twink okay in the the 2000s where yeah like all straight guys in the public eye were like hairless skinny spiky haired and then all gay guys were also like that and then the 2010s you know, one of the positive aspects of the 2010s for me was that this, you know, like bears and like dad bod, and like secondary male <laughs> yeah, sexual characteristics became fashionable. So, um, so you know, there's always something that someone that will like it, but it's really about confidence. Okay, cool. Thanks so much, Jack. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. 